So we've just been uh, <laughs> getting into the teachings on calm abiding. <laughs> and uh, the, the first section, if you look in your outline, is talking about the conducive place um, and arranging the proper, proper circumstances for doing the calm abiding meditation. If we have all the proper circumstances, then they say it's possible to uh, attain calm abiding in as little as six months. But if you don't have them, then they say even if you meditate for years, you won't be able to uh, get to complete calm abiding. Now, as we go through those, you'll, you'll probably see that we may lack one or more of them. Um, <laughs> don't get discouraged. We can still practice at our own level, but what it's also telling us is that, you know, don't expect to get full single-pointed concentration and go into, you know, full absorption. Um, living in the middle of Seattle, kind of be realistic with what we expect to attain. Okay, so the first um, condition, and there's various ways of listing these two. So, you know, different texts will say different ones um, or break them down in different ways, but they boil down to the same point. So the first one is to abide in a favorable place. So this is talking about the external place. So we want a place that is calm and quiet. And they say a place that's high if possible because when you're doing a lot of meditation, you want to be able to look far distances and stretch the mind out and look in the sky. You know, so not in the middle of a valley and not in a closed-in place, but a high place, um, quiet, a place that's healthy and free from illness where you can get water and food easily and you can get good quality water and food um, you know, and also where the air is pure. Because the, these things really do influence the mind. You know, if you're living in a place where the water is very dirty and the air is polluted and the food lacks, you know, substance, then it, it becomes more difficult to carry on with your practice. Uh, you're also in a place where there's easy access to food and clothing. Um, where you can get your necessities easily and you don't have to go down to town a lot and um, you don't have to break your meditation schedule to, to go and get things. Because when you do calm abiding meditation, you're doing a pretty rigorous meditation schedule. And, you know, you, you can't afford to take a half a day break or a whole day break to go down to town to get food or clothes. Uh, and also you want a place where these things are easily accessible so you don't have to engage in wrong livelihood in order to get them. So you don't want to have to be in a situation where you have to steal to get your food or where you have to tell stories or lie in order for, um, for people to give you things because that's going to damage the meditation. It's also good if we can live in a place um, where other great meditators have practiced before because there's a certain blessing or transformation that happens in the place. Um, and, you know, I remember when I first heard this, I said, what do you mean blessing in a place, in a place where meditators, and you know, I mean, that sounds superstitious. But when you go to some of the pilgrimage places, for example, when you go to Borgaya or, you know, you went to Mount Kailash, and you go to these places where, you know, either the Buddha was or Guru Rinpoche or 
these famous people. And there's some special energy there. And I figure if I can feel special energy, then there's something there. Because I am tuned into, you know, esoteric, mysterious things like a piece of concrete is. So, you know, if I feel something, then, then there's something happening. <laughs> and just my own experience in going for pilgrimage when you're in places where, you know, great practitioners have been, it really does inspire your mind. Um, and it could be, you know, just like an interplay between your mind and that place because you think of how they were and how they practiced and the attainments they received in that place and automatically your own mind feels much more uplifted and joyful and enthusiastic about practice. But on the other hand, we can't just rely on the energy of a place where a great meditator has been because that alone isn't going to get us um, deep meditation. And I also learned that from my own experience um, because one year Lama Zopa took a small group of students up to Lauda, the cave where he had meditated for 20 years in his previous life. It's way up in the middle of the Himalayas. Incredible, beautiful place. And we did a small retreat inside the cave where he was in his previous life. So if you're talking about blessed places, this was it. My mind was totally bonkers. You know, all over the world, bouncing off the walls. And it really showed me that you can be sitting in the room with a holy being, in a holy place, doing a holy practice. And when your mind's uncontrolled, it's uncontrolled. You know? So, I'm trying to put this in balance here. (laughs) Yeah. There's a certain energy, but also don't accord it more importance than your own mind. (laughs) Uh, Also, we want to... Be in a place where it's where there it's free from dangers, where there aren't wild animals or wild people for that matter. Maybe a place where they have no guns or gun control or you know, something like that. Also where there's no disease. Um, and a place where there's not much sound, where it's free of sound of either barking dogs or running water, howling wind. Um, noisy people, okay, because even the sounds of nature can sometimes be distracting uh, when you're trying to do single-pointed meditation. And also a place that is near other meditators. Um, so we, we want to be so- solitary enough to really be able to do our practice seriously, but not isolated from other people who are like-minded. Because, you know, when we do serious meditation, we often encounter obstacles and difficulties. Uh, And so it's helpful to have Dharma friends around who are doing similar kinds of meditation, who have the same kind of value system as we do, because then we can, you know, go and talk with them when we're having difficulty in our meditation and get some advice from them. And that's quite helpful to do. Um... When you when you go into a serious retreat too, to have all the things that you need with you, um, <laughs> and 
you know, have that when you start because I've watched some people go and do retreat and the first week or the first month is an extend every day a new shopping list is coming out of everything they need, you know, that they were sure they thought they had everything before, but, but they didn't. So we want to make sure that we have the things we need. And especially, we want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of the teachings before we go and do long retreat. And so this is the purpose, really, of the study that we're doing now, is that we'll get a clear understanding so that if we do a serious retreat, retreat, we're going to have the tools at our fingertips and know how to meditate, what the antidotes for various obscurations and problems are, what to do if certain hindrances arise. Um, we're going to, you know, be able to know how to, to deal with what comes up. This is very important because um, a lot of what Westerners especially, you know, they just got meditation and want to go out off and do, you know, this big, huge, long retreat without, you know, really knowing what meditation means. And that can um, be quite difficult and it can make the mind really restless and uncomfortable because if you don't know what you're doing, um, what comes up in your meditation? Well, the usual stuff that comes up in your mind when you're in the city. Except if you don't know how to meditate, then you don't know how to deal with all that garbage when it comes up. Okay, so it's really valuable to have clear instructions and to study them beforehand. I got a letter from um, one young person who had, he had first met the Dharma at one of the courses I was teaching in Tushita. And uh, he had spent... That was in 1990, and, you know, so it was like a good three years that he spent studying and doing some retreats. And then he did, like, a really kind of strict retreat last autumn. And he said he had a really good experience doing it, and he felt that kind of all the years of study he had done had really paid off in this retreat because he really kind of felt like he knew what he was doing and where he was going in his meditation. I thought that was quite an interesting story when he wrote he wrote and told me that. Okay, um then the second um prerequisite is to be free from gross desires and to have few desire. So that means working with our attachment. And as much as we can do this before retreat, then the easier our retreats are going to be. I mean, the easier our whole life is going to be if we're able to subdue our attachments. Um, and so we have to be able to abandon the mind that is always kind of daydreaming and thinking, how nice it would be to have da 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 And this is when I was referring to the shopping lists that come out of retreaters' <laughs> rooms. It's because this is the mind that is often at work. You know, sometimes it's legit needs that people forgot that they didn't take care of. And sometimes it's the mind that's saying, oh, well, you know, if I only had this, my meditation would go better. And if only this happened, da, 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 and if only. And then the mind just starts wanting, you know, 10 zillion million things. Except then you're meditating. You have nothing to distract you from your cravings. So your cravings get really forceful and potent, you know. I need a box of raisins. I can't meditate without a box of raisins. 
Um, I keep hearing about the the um, the notes that came out of the one year shamatha <laughs> retreat. <laughs> Someday maybe they'll divulge it. <laughs> but I think you know this is what happens a lot. Okay, so we have to um, be mindful in our meditations and also mindful in the break times um, and apply the antidotes when the mind of desire is arising. And so in this kind of context, mindfulness, actually, it you know, the word mindfulness means different things and you'll find often in, you know, Theravada practice, uh, mindfulness refers to just witnessing different things. Here, mindfulness is referring not just to witnessing, but to, to really actively asking ourselves, how am I responding? And then if some kind of defilement is arising, then knowing the antidote and applying it. Yeah. So, it, you know, here it, it, it isn't just sitting in, you know, attachment, clinging, craving, you know, as your mind's going bonkers. But really knowing, okay, when my mind is, is really stuck in attachment, clinging, craving, I have to meditate on death and on the ugly aspects of the things that I'm attached to and on impermanence and the disadvantages of cyclic existence and then really knowing um, what medicine to give your mind. To, to calm the desires because you know the desire that, and the attachment energy is one of the chief obstacles when we start to do serious meditation uh, especially those of us who have grown up to be patriotic consumers <laughs> it's a hard habit to break and then the next um, point is similar but it, it's slightly different it's to be satisfied and to be content and this is a real virtue. If we can cultivate the mind of, of contentment, cultivate the mind of satisfaction, recognizing that satisfaction doesn't mean getting all the things we want, but satisfaction means um, being able to say what I have is good enough. And so to really kind of practice saying that, you know, when desires pop up, oh, what I have is good enough. What's happening in my life now is good enough. These clothes are good enough. This house is good enough. Yeah? And developing really some kind of, of contentment and satisfaction. Because then that gives us the ability to, to be happy no matter where we're living and what's going on. Whereas if we don't have contentment and satisfaction, even we got to do retreat in the penthouse um, hut, uh, you know, the, the mind is is still going to be wavering and and um, discontent. Okay, so really, um, you know, having the the mind be content with what is right now, instead of thinking, oh, when this retreat is over, then I'll go and get this and this and this. And I mean, it's really interesting to watch retreats. When you lead a two-day retreat, you know, the people start leaving kind of Sunday morning. If you lead a four-day retreat that starts on, um, like, Wednesday night, people start, their minds start leaving on Saturday, which is the day that the people who are doing a two-day retreat are just settling in and getting there. Yeah. And when you lead a month-long retreat, the mind starts leaving about a week before the retreat is over. And, you know, what I mean is that the mind just thinks, oh, well, when I go out of retreat, 
then I'll get, and then I'll go do this, and then I'll talk to these friends and that friends, and I'll tell everybody my far-out experiences. And, <laughs> I mean, the mind is, is, is just so so creative in, in its distractions. And, um, you know, we kind of settle into retreat, and then we have a few kind of, you know, whatever experiences in meditation, and then we get all excited and can't wait for the retreat to be over so we can go tell people about it. <laughs> um, so, so just developing some kind of mind of contentment, not letting the mind go into the future so much with, with fantasies of pleasures. Okay, And so not wanting more and better. Now, this is America's theme, more and better, more and better. But, you know, developing contentment, this is okay, what I have. So as much as we can develop this in our daily life right now, it will prepare us for, for serious retreats, and it will also make our life right now much more peaceful. Okay, then the next uh, quality is um, free from involvement in worldly activities. So when we're doing calm abiding meditation, you know, then we have to really set up a, a good condition, not just externally, but some discipline in our mind so that we aren't always relating with other people. Because it's very difficult to do retreat and carry on a social life at the same time. And that's why, you know, when I lead retreats, I usually encourage people to be silent. Because it's so clear that as soon as you talk in a break time, and when you sit down to meditate, you start rerunning the discussion in your mind. You know, you probably see this if you meditate in the evening or in the middle of the day. You rerun all the things that kind of happened in the day. And our mind gets so picky. Oh, they said this to me and I said that to them. Oh, I hope they didn't misunderstand. Oh, I said completely the wrong thing. They really didn't mean this and responded the wrong way. I've got to get up from my meditation seat. Oh, no, they're meditating too. I can't break talk to them in the middle of the session. But the next break, I've got to really clarify that I really didn't mean that so they're not mad at me and not upset with me. And we spend the whole meditation, you know, worrying basically about our reputation. You know, either that or we're on the other end of it. And they said that to me, and what did they really mean? And, you know, analyzing this. So it's, it's really important when you're doing meditation to, to have your own space and basically mind our own business and not get involved in a lot of, uh, you know, what's going on in the community around us, what's going on with the people around us. So this means, like, no telephone calls. Um, no letter writing, no social life, um, no doing business. No, because <laughs> then you start meditating on, okay, well, I bought two of these for $5, and i got to sell them for $7 to make the profit, and if I sell enough, then I can meditate for another two years. <laughs> okay, so we really have to, um, you know, keep our energy very much inward and do the very minimum um, of interrelating with other people. That doesn't mean blocking other people out when we're in retreat and being cold, you know, because we're certainly trying to cultivate a heart of compassion. But it means not getting involved in, in frivolous socializing things that just keep our mind chattering away. 
So these are some disciplines to really think about. Um, you know, not only for the days when, when we go and do serious retreat for years and years, but also when we go down to Cloud Mountain or some other retreat center, even to do a weekend or a month retreat, how to make our retreat successful. And then another um, quality we need is pure ethical conduct. And this is one of the most important ones. Um, and so this means what the time when we're in retreat to abandon the, the ten destructive actions and also to do some purification from previous times that we have engaged in, in destructive actions. Because when we do retreat, all of our stuff comes up. And a lot of the stuff that comes, you know, one big thing that comes is like lots of desire for this, that, and the other thing. And the other thing that comes is lots of, of regret and self-hatred and remorse for things that we've done in the past. And so if we're able to keep good ethical conduct before we do retreat, then there's less regret and stuff that comes up during retreat. And also if we're able to not get involved in, in things like that during retreat, it just is, means less hassle and less problem. So it's also good to do purification both before retreat and, you know, daily while we're in retreat. I was really pleased last year during the, the one-month long rim retreat um, the people of their own accord, due to the um, the enthusiasm of a few members of this group, got very excited about doing the 35 Buddhas and Vajrasattva practice every night. And so I went to take a walk or read a book or go to sleep, and they were all in frustration with <laughs> Vajrasattva. Um, and it was really very, very good because I think it helped the, the retreat tremendously. Because as you purify, then your whole retreat goes better. Okay, so ethical conduct. Um, and also be, why ethical conduct is important is because when you're doing calm abiding meditation, you're really working with controlling the mind. And before you can control the mind, we have to practice controlling our verbal and physical actions because those are much easier to control in our mind. They say everything comes from the mind. The mind is the originator or source of all activities. So first the mind moves, then the speech or the body. So if we want to stop negativities, we have to stop with the, with the things, you know, where there's this time delay or time lapse. And so it's easier to stop the verbal and physical negativities uh, and then work on the mind. Okay, so that's another reason why ethical conduct is important, because it's going to be real difficult to control our mind if we can't control our speech and our body even a little bit. Okay, and then um, uh, the last the last one is to abandon preconceptions regarding uh, sense objects, and so this has to do with. Um, you know, again, you know, lots of attachment towards sense objects or aversion towards sense objects. And it also has to do with really developing the proper motivation uh, for meditation. Because if we think, well, I'm going to develop calm abiding so that then I'll feel good or I'll be famous or I'll have clairvoyant powers, we have some kind of motivation that's very much to do with attachment to the happiness of this life. 
But the mind of calm abiding is a mind of the form realm, and which has given up attachment to the, the realm of desires. So if we have a motivation that's very much concerned with desire realm success and reputation and our own personal benefit, that motivation, in fact, will become an obstacle to our meditation because it becomes more difficult to, to leave that kind of attachment to go into the mind of calm abiding. So these are the are the um, circumstances for having calm abiding meditation.